Good morning. Welcome, everyone. My name is Levi. I'm one of the pastors here. Before we get into the message this morning, I thought I'd start out a little bit differently because someone passed me a note this morning of something they felt like the Holy Spirit had put on their heart to in, inform our church body of. Now, we believe, of the, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that, the, that God is living and active, that he still wants to speak to us today. That primarily happens through the scriptures, right? We have to understand what he has said because God will not say something different than he's already said. Now, that said, our God is intimately acquainted with each and every one of us, and he is active in our life. And so we've talked about before how we, we believe that the Holy Spirit can give us shoulder taps. Hey, go pray for this person. Hey, go give this verse away. Hey, here's a dream or a vision or something that I want you to know, guidance and direction that's more specific uh, than maybe just a chapter and verse. And so I've, I've invited you before. I've said, hey, if you ever have something that you feel like the Spirit has laid in your heart that you want to share, you can bring it to me or one of my elders. We will pray over it and decide if now's the time, yes or no, later. We'll test it against Scripture and see, is that heretical, is it not? And then maybe we'll share it. And so I got a note this morning of someone felt like the Spirit put something on their heart, and I'll just share, share what, what got shared, or what, what, what got passed along to me. This note basically said that, that this person felt like, in our church, there is someone here this morning who's really wrestling with some really, really difficult questions about what God is up to in their life. And they've come to kind of a, a fork in the road moment in their life, where they have a choice to make. They can leave God, and, and kind of shake the fist and say, you haven't answered my prayers, you haven't answered my questions, and so I'm out, I'm done with you. Or, or they could say, I'm willing to trust you even though I don't understand, even though I don't have all my questions answered, I'm willing to walk with you if you're willing to walk with me. Now, I hope you, I hope you know the obvious, the obvious choice there. It's not an easy choice, but the Spirit wants this person to know that, that God will never divorce you. So don't divorce him. Don't divorce him. Keep walking with him. Even if you don't know, you can trust him with whatever question you have, with whatever frustration you have. He will walk with you. He will walk alongside of you. He will never divorce you. And that's actually a really, really good segue into our message for this morning. My, my point, you, the, the big idea you can read in the bulletin, we'll get to that. But one of my main points is that it, it comes from Romans 8.1 that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and what we'll talk about in a minute is how, how that relates to the fact that God will never divorce you. He is never going to leave you. When you come to Jesus by faith, he will never, ever, ever, ever leave you or divorce you or forsake you. So don't leave him. Don't leave him. You can trust him. All right. Well, with that said, let's get into our message this morning. We are a week into the new year. Right? And I'm curious, who all made uh, New Year's resolutions? Anybody? No one? A couple of you? Okay, a few of you. Yeah? Yeah? The rest of you are like me. Right? We've learned that those are dumb because... Because we never do them, right? We, we never do them. We, we uh, say, you know, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to go on this diet. I, I'm going to do, I don't know, I'm going to save more money. I'm going to fix my attitude, right? Uh, the older I get, the more grumpy I get. I'm going to be more thankful, all right? We make all of these things, and there's nothing wrong with these resolutions. They're good. Most of them are good, good resolutions. The problem is that we fail to keep them, and that is defeating, 
like we looked at three weeks ago in Romans 7. We know what we ought to do, but the good we ought to do, we don't do, and the bad that we don't want to do, we do do, and it's a mess, and that's what it's like with our resolution sometimes, right? We make a resolution, and then we fall short again, and that is incredibly discouraging. Now, what if I told you, what if I told you that there was a resolution out there that you wouldn't have to worry about keeping yourself? There is actually a resolution out there that will keep you. I'm not talking about some infomercial new thing, right? This thing that turns your keg belly into a six-pack while you sleep. Although, that would be amazing. If that exists, please let me know. I would wear that. I would wear that contraption for sure, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about some new fad diet. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that when we come to Christ by faith, he makes a resolution that keeps us. When we can't keep ourselves, he has made a resolution and he has done the work to keep us. The resolution he makes is one that keeps us. And if we will ruthlessly resolve to remember this resolution and what it took to make this resolution, we will discover motivation and power that will keep us on the path of overflowing life where there is peace and joy to be found in abundance. And so that's what I want to do with you here this morning. I simply want to examine what is Christ's resolution that keeps us and then how does that give us motivation and power to live a life that is led by the Spirit of Jesus with joy and with peace. And so firstly, what is Christ's resolution that keeps us if we come to him by faith. Now we are going to read the first four verses of Romans 8 from the NIV in a minute, so you can turn there. But before we read that, I'd like for you to close your eyes for a minute. I'm going to ask you to, to imagine something. I want you to imagine in your mind a house that is condemned, okay? A condemned house. What does it look like? We've all seen these houses, these buildings that are condemned. They kind of look like if the wind just picked up a little bit, they'd, they'd fall over, right? Everything is broken. It's in disrepair. The yard is a mess, junk everywhere. It looks toxic. Maybe some steaming bubble-up mud puddles with overgrown buyers and windows. In the, in the window of the house, you can see an, a giant sign. It's taped. It says, condemned. Okay, now imagine, imagine if that house turned into a person. What does that person look like? Ugly? Sad? Lonely? Depressed? Kind of shrunken? Hunched over by the weight of the world? Their eyes are sunken in, maybe kind of black and blue? They've lost their, that sparkle in their eye, right? They look hollow and disheveled. It's a real shell of a person. And around their neck hangs a sign says condemned. They've been cast out. They've been rejected. They are alone in the world. They're alone in the universe. Unloved, undesirable, unlovable. Okay, you can open your eyes. Folks, that picture of that person that I just described to you that you tried to imagine and envision with your mind, I, I realize this might be a little bit dramatic. That's you and that's me, but for the grace of God. We are condemned, rejected, isolated, cast out. We aren't deserving of anything other than wrath and rejection. We are hopeless. We are destined to struggle through life with despair, 
depressed, and eventually reach our just end, which is destruction at the wrath of a holy God. That is our situation. That is who we are. But for those of us who have come to Christ by faith, things are different. Things are different for those who have faith. We were once adrift and engulfed in an ocean of deep darkness. But as we read last week from the Nativity, those of us who have come to Christ have seen a great light. I want you to listen with me to what I think are some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. What I'm about to read is the resolution of Christ that will keep you if you come to him in faith. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That house, that person that you imagined, when they come to Christ in faith, he performs a miracle. And it starts by removing that condemned sign from around their neck. And then he goes to work on us. He breathes life and hope back into our eyes, into our lungs. He strips away the death and decay, and he restores to us what the moth and the locust have eaten. He, re, re, he redeems us. He brings back our youthful zeal. Health comes back into our body. We receive healing in countless ways. The wounds and the trauma that we experience, he transforms into testimonies of his goodness and his faithfulness. We begin to look radiant rather than hollowed out, redeemed. The Bible talks about how when we come to Christ in faith, we are clothed with the splendor of the king and not as a servant, but as a son or daughter. We are an heir, a co-heir with Jesus Christ. And so as he removes that sign of condemned from around our neck, you can hear through the halls of his kingdom, through all of creation, his voice, where he says, this one is mine. This one is mine. They have been purchased. They have been redeemed. I have bought them back, and I do not, nor will I ever, condemn them. I will never leave them. I will never forsake them. They belong to me forever. And there's nothing anyone in heaven or hell can do about it. This church is the resolution that keeps us Placing your faith in Jesus Christ transfers you from the realm of sin and death into the realm of his spirit where life can be found and experienced. And I realize this is only one sentence. It's just one verse. But we can't just gloss over it. It's too big of a deal. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm not sure we get the gravity of this. I know we often forget it. Church, this one verse changes everything for us, or at least it should. This sentence tells us that for those who are in Christ, there is not now nor will there ever be condemnation. Ever. This means that for the Christian, that God finds no fault in you, ever. It means that he sees nothing in you that needs to be punished, ever. He never sees you and thinks, I'm going to bring the pain. i got to bring the punishment. That's not a thing that God ever thinks if you are in Jesus. If you're in Jesus, you are free of all charges of wrongdoing. And there is nothing you could do. And better yet, there's nothing that you could fail to do that would ever place you back under the punishment of God. 
And this statement clues us into the reality that for the Christian, condemnation is not a state that we move in and out of in, in, in the presence of God. It's not a category that applies to us any longer. Condemnation, rejection, it just doesn't exist for us. For those who are in Christ, the only thing that we can expect from the Father, acceptance, love, and welcome, that's all that remains. Church, what this resolution means for you and for me, for those of us who are in Jesus, it means that God promises never to divorce you. Never. Now I realize that this is hard for us to wrap our heads around because we sort of made a mess of the institution of marriage. But Ephesians 5 tells us why God gave us marriage to begin with. It wasn't just for companionship. That was part of it, but that wasn't the chief goal. God gave us, a, gave us marriage to be a living metaphor of what he is inviting us to experience in relationship with him. Right? He wants us to know that when he makes a promise, when he says vows to us, when we say vows to him, in faith, he resolves to never, ever, ever divorce us for any reason. When we come to Jesus, by faith, we are his. We're his for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness, and in health. Not even death or demons will ever be able to break the bond that exists between us. This is the resolution that keeps us for those who are in Christ, he is resolved to always keep us in relationship with himself. He will never divorce you, ever. He will never leave you. And as if that weren't a fantastic idea in and of itself, we must also recognize what it took on the part of the Father and of Christ to make this resolution possible for us. How was Christ able to resolve to remove our condemnation? How was he able to make that vow that he will never divorce you? Romans 8, 2 through 3 tell us. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Paul tells us, that God removed us from condemnation and set us free from sin and death through the incarnation that we just celebrated here at Christmas time, Jesus coming, and also through his death and resurrection that we will later celebrate in April during Easter. We're told that God parted with his one and only son so he could resolve to remove our condemnation. And I realize that you've heard that before, right? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. It's, it's the most popular Bible verse out there. We hear this probably every Sunday. We hear this all the time. And I think that sometimes the familiarity with that reality, it loses its, its gusto. So I just want you to sit in that for a second. What did it take for Jesus to make the promise that he will never divorce you? What did it take on God's part? Imagine with me, the love that you feel for one of your loved ones. You might be a parent in here, and so it might be your kids. <clears throat> you might be married. It might be a spouse. It might be a sibling, a, a mom or dad. Just go to that space in your head right now. The love that you feel, the bond that you feel for someone that you love in your life. Now, what would it take for you to sacrifice that person? 
What would it take for you to give that person up? Can you imagine it? Now multiply whatever you're feeling times infinity. And that's what God had to endure. As John Piper puts it, he says, the massive Mount Everest obstacle standing between God and our salvation was his, his infinite, overwhelming, white-hot, affectionate bond for his son. It's almost an insurmountable obstacle. Could God, would God give up his cherishing, his treasuring, his affection for his son? Would he hand him over to be lied about, to be betrayed, denied? Would he hand him over to be abandoned and mocked and flogged and beaten and spit on and nailed to a cross and pierced with a spear like an animal hung out on a rack? Would God ever do such a thing? Church, this unthinkable reality is affirmed here for us in Romans 8, 2 through 3. That yes, indeed, God did do such a thing. He handed his son over so he could make a resolution that would keep you and I by faith when we cannot keep ourselves. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the how. The incarnation, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that's the how. But what's the why? Why would God ever make such a promise to us? Verse 4 tells us, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus die? Why did he rise? He did so, so that you and I might live according to the law. We might live in righteous fulfillment of the law. To say it another way, he did so, so that you and I might discover the motivation and power to live holy lives. And for some of you, that might sound super churchy. For others, that might sound like something that you don't even really desire. I don't want to be holier than thou. I don't want to live a holy life. Let me just humor, humor me for a minute. Think about the life of Jesus. Whether you're a devout Christian in here this morning and you know a lot about Jesus or this is your first Sunday in church and you just know a little bit about Jesus, chances are what you know about him is good, right? It's good. I've always found it interesting that no one, ever, no one ever takes issue with the life of Christ. They take issue with some of his claims, right? We can agree or disagree about whether, whether he was God like he claimed to be. But when we talk about the life of Jesus, it's almost unequivocally unquestioned that he was a good teacher, a great teacher, a great person, right? Everyone kind of just agrees. I've never heard anybody, when we talk about Jesus, I've never heard anybody say, oh, you heard about Jesus? Oh, that guy, he's the worst, right? No one says that. No one says that. No one says that. No. Jesus was an incredible, incredible person. He was an incredible person. He lived a life that is commendable, and I would say even desirable, and I think everybody would agree with that. He stood up for the weak and the helpless, he championed the case of the widow and the orphan. He was firm in his convictions. Man, the, the guy knew truth. He was willing to die for what he believed in, yet he was also insanely gracious and kind. He was wise. 
shrewd. He knew what he was about, and he didn't let anyone sway him from his mission. But, and I love this, he was never in a hurry, never rushed, never recklessly reactive, never He was always intentional. He loved people where they were at, but did so lovingly and gently and was always working to bring people along, to challenge them to become better. This was Jesus. He was invited to parties where the Bible says there were uh, sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, and he was invited more than once, which tells me that he was winsome. And although he stood up for truth, he was not judgmental to those who who were outside of the faith. People liked to be around him. Everybody loved Jesus. They appreciated him, except for maybe the religious leaders. This was Jesus. He always had the right word at the right time to build up and to challenge. Church, when I say that Jesus died to make you holy, This is what I mean. This is what I mean. Jesus died to make you like him. Good. Loving. Caring. Wise. Righteous. Just. Healthy. And whole. Who doesn't want that? Aren't these the things, these are the characteristics that we aim for in making resolutions, aren't they? We want to become more like that. We want to become more like Jesus. I think it's safe to say that Jesus lived the most perfect, full, and joyous life that anyone has ever lived, even though it was cut short. And he died so that you and I could live it too, found and free from condemnation. Now my question for you is, if Romans 8, 1 is true, if there really is no condemnation for those of us who have come to faith in Jesus, if that, if that resolution promises to keep us and to give us power, then why do so many of us feel less than kept in our relationship with Christ? Why do so many of us feel like we're failing, like we're floundering, like there's something more that we have to do to stay in God's good graces? I simply think it comes down to the fact that we forget. We forget the facts And when we forget the facts, we forget the feels, right? We forget the feels. To say it another way, we don't ruthlessly remember Christ's resolution and the things that made it possible for him to make the promise that he will never divorce us. We fix our mind on the wrong things and then our feelings follow and they lead us into deception and despair. Look with me at verses 5 through 8. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set On what their flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Tim Keller summarizes these verses in his commentary on Romans, he says it like this. He says that what Paul is saying here is that what pre- whatever, preoccupies, whatever preoccupies the mind controls the life. What we fix our minds upon shapes how we live and the quality of our lives. 
When we fix our minds on the things of this world rather than the things of the Spirit, death results. And it's not just a physical death. It's not just a physical death. It's an emotional and spiritual death of sorts where we experience brokenness and a disorienting and despairing sense of the way that things are in the world and we lose hope that they'll just always be this way. It'll just always be this way. We end up living with less and less hope when we fix our mind on the things of the flesh. And rather than thriving as people, we struggle to just survive. Whereas when we ruthlessly remember the things of God, when we fix our minds on what the Spirit desires, we discover peace and life. So what does this look like? Keller continues, he says, we can take any negative emotion and see how this works out. Let's say that I'm becoming extremely worried about something. Now, concern is unavoidable, right? If you're human and you care, unless you're a completely indifferent person and you're just like, you don't care about anything, you have other issues, right? But if you care about life, if you care about people, if you care about goals, if you, you're going to worry. That is a natural thing. That is a natural thing. But if the worry becomes debilitating, if the worry becomes debilitating, it's because I'm forgetting that I am a child of God and that my heavenly father is only going to exercise his control over the universe in a way that would be loving to one of his own. Over-worry, Keller says, over-worry, a debilitating sense of worry and anxiety is forgetting the things of the spirit. It's being led by the flesh rather than ruthlessly remembering and fixing our minds on the desires of the spirit. Let me just say, church, this is why we need community. And this is why sometimes we need medication. If we are stuck in worry, sometimes medication can help us get unstuck so that we can fix our minds on the things of the Spirit. And sometimes we need to come back into community so that we can have others say, hey, let me explain to you, I've been in a situation like that before. Let me tell you about how God came through. You can trust his faithfulness. You can trust that he will work all things together for the good of those who have been called according to his plan and his purpose. You can trust it. Let me tell you how. Another example is when guilt and a sense of unworthiness drive us. A sign, is, a sign of this is when we take on too many things. When we assume a crushing number of responsibilities because one, we're either trying to work off or make up for our sin, or two, we fear being rejected by God. We feel like we have to earn our place in the kingdom. In either case, that taking on all of those responsibilities so that we're crushed under the weight of just feeling overwhelmed, whether we do that to work off or, or, or pay for our sins or to try and earn our, our place in God's kingdom, in either case, here too we discover the culprit. We're forgetting the things of the Spirit. We're forgetting that it's not about what we do. It's about the resolution that Christ made. We can't keep it. He keeps it for us. He keeps it for us. Now, if you're tracking with me, you might be thinking, well, Levi, you told me that Christ made a resolution that, that, that he will keep us in relationship with him, but now you're telling me that I've got this responsibility to remember. So you're really saying that this is my resolution to keep, right? What the heck, dude? Is that what you're saying? Is he just pulling the bait and switch on me here? No, I'm not. It is true that our number one problem is forgetfulness. For those in Christ, there is no condemnation. That is also true. That's true and always will be true for those of us who have faith. But we forget this, and when we do, while there is no condemnation, there will never be condemnation, 
it doesn't say that there will never be consequences. There will be consequences when we fail to remember. But there will never be condemnation. There may be greater degrees of brokenness and anxiety, other negative things that we experience when we forget. But those who are in Christ, even when we forget, he promises to never leave us, to never forsake us. And there will always be hope. Why? Because although sometimes we forget, Christ never does. Look with me at Romans 8, 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And look at this verse, verse 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who is in you. He promises to keep you even when you can't keep yourself. It's a commitment, a resolution, a determination on the part of the Father to pursue you with, as the Jesus, Jesus Storybook Bible says, a never stopping, a never giving up, an unbreaking always and forever love. This resolution will keep you when you and I cannot keep ourselves. And remembering this love and the lengths that God would go to, to to pursue us with this love, it creates a sense of obligation in our heart. It creates a bond or a loyalty in our heart. It motivates us to set our minds on new and better things. Look at verses 12 through 13. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. We have a new loyalty. We have an obligation. It's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will put to death the misdeeds of the body, and you will live. Now, I realize this has been a little bit more of a dense message. It's not what I wanted, but it, it's what it was. And so I thought I could keep talking, or I thought we could con- conclude this morning with two illustrations that help, that help us in our remembering. I've said we need to ruthlessly remember whose we are, who you belong to, right? So I just want to leave you with, with, this, with, this, with these two illustrations. Let's look at Romans 8, 14 through 17 together. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought, you, or brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are the children, our, our children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. So he's telling us that because there is no condemnation in Christ, that should change how we relate to Jesus. And I want to give you two metaphors, two illustrations that I hope will drive home my point and give you more motivation and more power to live that holy life that we talked about. The first one is marriage. The first one is marriage. I want you to think about a single man who sins against the state, right? Let's say he gets a speeding ticket or something. That is insanely different than a husband 
who sins against his wife. When you sin against the state, there's a threat of condemnation, of rejection, jail time, death possibly, and those things are bad, but that doesn't exactly create a huge sense of loyalty. There's not a whole lot of feelings when we go before a judge. There's a fear of rejection, but there's not a sense of, of disappointment. There, there's not a whole lot of feelings because the state isn't a person. What Jesus is inviting you and I into is a marriage, and that changes everything. One where he said, listen, the legal status of our relationship is taken care of. I will never, ever divorce you, no matter what. And now, we operate out of a sense of security, right? We know that no matter what, we can go to our spouse and say, listen, I dropped the ball here in a really big way. I sinned against you, and I am so, so sorry, We can do that because we have the security of knowing the legal status of our relationship is never going to change. Divorce is not an option. Christ has made that vow to us, which is awesome because it gives us security, but it does something else. It changes our hearts. Where you and I, it's like, yeah, I don't want to sin against the state mostly because I don't want to get caught, but I do not want to sin against my wife because I cannot bear violating our love the promise that she made to me. I don't want to disappoint someone that I love. Do you see how that changes? Now I'm not just concerning myself with not breaking a law. I'm concerning myself with loving someone who I love and I don't want to disappoint. That is what Christ is inviting us into. And so when he says, I will never condemn you, he's saying, I'll never divorce you and I want that love and the lengths that I had to go to make that promise, I want that to change you from the inside. I don't want you to treat me like a judge with a gavel that's gonna bring the hammer down. That's not what I am. I'm your husband, and I love you, and I will always love you, and that will never change. It doesn't mean there won't be consequences, right? If I would sin against Rachel in a, in a major way, our marriage would still be intact because divorce is off the table, but I could wound her heart and there could be severe consequences that we have to work through and trust that has to be rebuilt. That is what Christ is inviting us into. And that is what we need to work to remember. When you screw up, remember the vows Jesus spoke. I will never condemn you. Meaning, I ain't ain't going anywhere. I'm not divorcing you. You are mine. You are my bride and I love you. You can tell me what happened. Let's work through it together. That's the first illustration. The second illustration, I'm just gonna tell you a story about my son. Sorry, if you're here, you know this is common. I I tell stories about my kids, so if you're tired of them, sorry. (laughs) The other day, I'm deep in sleep. Rach and I are deep in sleep. I don't even know what time it was. It was late. Um, And Graham, my middle son, comes up bawling into my room. He was scared. He had a bad dream. Something bad happened. He thought something was in his room. He was terrified. He came into my room crying looking for his dad. And do you know what I did? I said, man, suck it up, you coward. What the heck? I raised you better than this. What's your problem? Get out. You're out of my family, right? Get the heck out. I thought you were going to be courageous. Here you are crying like a little girl, right? <laughs> of course not. Of course not, because he's not a servant, right? He's not a slave in my household. He is a son. I can't fire him as my son. I let him climb up in bed, and I gave him a hug. I said, what's up, man? Tell me what happened. He's like, I don't know. I had a bad dream or whatever, and he's crying. I said, well, you're safe, man. I got you. And I could tell he wasn't believing me. 
So I did what any good dad would do. I flexed my muscles, right? So, buddy, feel this bicep. You feel that? You feel how jacked your dad is, right? And we both laughed because I'm not. And then I told him, I said, dude, I love you. And as long as you're next to me and you're with me, I will protect you. I will protect you. That too, and that last part of Romans 4, or Romans 8, 14 through 17, is the relationship you've been invited to in, with your heavenly father. When you screw up, when you're afraid, you do not have to fear to come into your daddy's room because he is not going to condemn you. He's not going to send you out. He is not going to rebuke you and say, shame on you for being a coward. No, there's no fear. You're not a slave. You cannot be fired. You are a son or a daughter whom he loves, and he's going to embrace you. He's going to say, feel my bicep, right? And we ain't going to laugh because God is strong, and he is jacked, more jacked than me, right? And he's got you. He's got you, and you can trust him. That is the point of the beginning of Romans 8. The Lord Jesus will never condemn you, meaning he will not divorce you. And because you've been made into a son or daughter, he will never fire you, he will never reject you for failing, for for doing anything wrong. You're always welcome. There's always grace, always. That's the only thing he says, here's what you can expect to receive from me. Love, acceptance, welcome. Never condemnation. Holy Spirit, help us never forget it. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for a rich and dense section of Scripture. Lord, we we just scratched the surface of it this morning. I pray that you would just make it resonate in our hearts this morning, that you would help us to ruthlessly remember whose we are, and the lengths you had to go to to make it so. Father, when we, when we fail, when we feel rejected, when we feel like we've disappointed you, when we come to you in failure again, when we failed to keep our promise, to keep our resolutions, would you remind us of the resolution you made and remind us of the truth that it and you will keep us by faith. Help us to remember that you've said vows to us that you will never divorce us. Help us to remember of the relationship that we've been invited into. We are not slaves who need to fear being fired or rejected or disowned. We are sons and daughters of the King and always will be because of the death and resurrection of your Son. Help us remember. Help us remember for your glory and our joy. Amen.